you know, what you underscore too, like you said, the flexibility of the cultural framework is so apparent, right? And so I think that's where understanding how power, fear, and violence play into that, those, those idols, right, take the story in a different direction and they cause American Christians to see the world in a very different way. And then too, to misunderstand, you know, their relationship to others. Some commentators cast the renewed fury of the Christian far right in recent years as the final lashings out of an increasingly irrelevant fringe, while others see in this group a renewed and rising fascist tendency in American politics. In order to tease out these and other threads, we are investigating the Christian far right. This is All the Rage. Welcome to another episode of All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. We've got a unique episode for you today. We have the uh, grand opportunity to interview Dr. Andrew Whitehead. He is the Associate Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, where he co-directs the Association of Religion Data Archives at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture. He is the co-author of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, which we discussed at some length on this podcast early on. Uh, He's written for The Washington Post, NBC News, Time, and Religion News Service, and speaks frequently about Christian nationalism. Uh, We're talking with him tonight about his newest book, American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. Thank you for being with us, Professor. Yeah, thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so this book, the, the, this book that we're talking about, uh, American Idolatry, it's different than taking America back for God. It's much more personal. So why did you decide to write this one? Yeah, you know, I think this book really is kind of the result of kind of two journeys that I was on. So one was professional um, and taking America back for God and writing that with Sam really was a part of that professional journey as a social scientist, trying to understand how Americans see their social worlds, act within it. Um, And we're both sociologists of religion. And what we found when we were analyzing, you know, the degree to which people embrace this idea of America as a Christian nation, um, it explains something beyond knowing their personal religiosity or knowing, you know, who they voted for, or if they identify as Republican or Democrat. And so that was really fascinating. And we could explain a lot about a lot of different social issues looking at that. And then, you know, I was on this personal journey too, having that I kind of share about in the book, but having grown up in Northern Indiana, pretty conservative, small rural town um, where this idea of the U.S. as a Christian nation, um, this idea that to be a good Christian is to be American and to be an American is, you know, to be Christian Um, and, you know, as I was, you know, continuing on this journey and leaving that community, um, and kind of, you know, starting out on my own, um, just starting to then see where those things, you know, couldn't be, you know, so tightly intertwined or that there are problems that arise, right. When we think that to be Christian is to be American or, or something like that. Um, and so this book really is kind of bringing both those journeys together where, um, coming to see and think about my Christian faith and what it really means to be um, a Christian and interact in the social world, um, but in a way that doesn't rely on 
you know, this idea that Christians need to be at the center of our society or that, um, you know, we need to take America back for God or anything like that. Um, and so, yeah, this book, I try to try to draw that in. Um, and it really, too, is a result of as a social scientist, just seeing all the things that Christian nationalism was associated with, um, you know, really kind of uh, going against what I was taught in these communities, like, oh, we need to love our neighbors and Jesus wants us to care for the poor and care for those around us. Um, but then this, you know, kind of community and this idea of America's Christian nation, um, the more that folks embrace that, it, it really looks like the more that they move away th- from those things. So it was kind of a similar journey than we kind of hear right now with people just kind of thinking through the faith that we were handed and how um, these values and morals we were given. Then when it came to political power, it's like, well, just set those aside. <laughs> and it was like, well, not so fast. Right. And so in this book, it's, it's really trying to think through a lot of those issues and, and yeah, just trying to share a bit of that journey. You get uh, you do some autobiographical work in the beginning of the book, sharing some of your own story, and it was surprising to me how similar your story has been to my own. You talk about mm. coming to terms with some of the uh, quote cracks and inconsistencies end quote mm-hmm. uh, in the faith of your youth, and I, I had very similar experiences. Um, all the way down to, you know, being radicalized by uh, Greg Boyd's myth of a Christian nation. Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, j- just a, a paradigm shifting work uh, growing mm-hmm. up in a, a politically and theologically conservative Christianity. Um, I lost some people from my church when I when I preached through that book. Um, yeah. But I'm curious if you could describe, you know, a handful of those cracks and inconsistencies uh, that you began to notice in your journey. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, Greg Boyd, his book, Myth of a Christian Nation, that was one one big one, like I share, like you uh, said, where in grad school, I read that and it kind of helped bring a lot of these together and, and give me at least a framework to start from. And I think even too, Greg Boyd is, you know, he's moved um, from that work and listened to the voices of marginalized communities because he kind of argues for like, this third way thing, which we should, you know, talk about. And that, that's not what we should do. Um, I don't think, and I don't want to argue for that, but so that's good to see, but it really gave me a framework of understanding um, and seeing myself as part of, you know, standing apart from or understanding America in terms of in this broader story of God interacting with humanity. It's, it's more like an empire and as Christians, right. God isn't interested or wanting to work through empire. And so that was really helpful but I think some of the biggest things that that came up for me is, um, you know, growing up in youth group and one of my youth pastors just remarking almost offhand um, about, you know, whether Christians should be able or should go and, and fight, quote unquote, for their country and kill people on the opposing side. And it, it wasn't just even like killing somebody. But then he mentioned like, well, what if they were Christian? Um, and so then right away, it was like, oh, you know, these categories of us and them, right, aren't so neat anymore. Where before, it's like, well, yeah, God is on America's side and we go and we fight and that's kind of how it's always been. Um, and it sounds naive, but that's what I was <laughs> growing up, right? And in this culture, it's kind of just what you accept. Um, another was, um, and whenever I share about this in, in certain groups, Um, was a band that I listened to growing up. And maybe you all (laughs) listened to this or some of your listeners, but Five Iron Frenzy, right? So middle-aged white dudes who grew up 
in, you know, evangelical Christianity. We were probably all fans at probably similar shows. Um, but their first song on uh, their first album talks about manifest destiny and how that led to the slaughter of native American peoples. And so as a, you know, growing up within white evangelical megachurch, you know, we never talked about racial injustice or that type of history. Right. Um, and so hearing that and then thinking, well, yeah, like that doesn't quite make sense when we talk about Christianity is about loving people. Um, but then we're like, we got to take this country for God. So it's just little things like that, that, you know, kind of were pebbles in the shoe that as you walked, it's like, I just can't get past this like this. I have to go back to this. Um, and then in college, um, taking an American history course. Um, and, and as you can see, a lot of this is tied to history, like knowing our history, right. It really helps kind of take the veil down. Um, but then, you know, having a, um, a, a professor who specialized in religion in the founding period, talk about how the founding fathers, you know, religion was important, but they were mostly deists and they certainly weren't evangelical Christians like we imagine it today. And then again, it's just like, oh my word, like, of course this makes sense to me. Um, it helps make sense of questions I had. And so it was little moments like that, I think, that played a big role. And then I think, too, with the field that I chose to study in social science, just gathering data, learning those methods, um, again, that, that builds in just a way of thinking and seeing the world that has helped, I think, make sense of a lot of those questions that, that came up. Um, and so those have been the parts that I think I can look to and looking back, see, okay, that played a role in at least getting me to think about or question the taken for grantedness of what I was handed. Now you understand why we can't teach history in schools. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. I mean, it is a, it's a program. Like it's a way of knowing and being in the world as, as you guys know, and are I'm sure exploring in this podcast, but that's, yeah, that's so true. Lots of things. Speaking of uh, Greg Boyd, a thing that he, a metaphor that he's used before is the House of Cards theology, right? Like yes. evangelicalism builds up this uh, this House of Cards where every piece is as as equally important as every other piece. And so, uh, if you if you get away from any aspect of a kind of very naive literalist fundamentalism, then the whole thing comes down. And so, yeah, evolution is threatening. Yeah, history is threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a very conservative um, Bible college uh, straight out of high school and just learning the very conservative but accurate or, you know, gesturing toward accuracy uh, interpretation or reading of church history, right? The first 500 years, right? Just reading primary sources, you know, I mean, they're, they're not political, they're not liberal, progressive firebrands, but just seeing the, the, the diversity on offer, yeah. uh, even in the you know, first, second, third century, it's like, oh, there's re- like this, 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 this monolith that we've been mm-hmm. presented as this, yes. this is the only thing Christianity is just falls away. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, so true. The, yeah. The dynamism of the, of Christianity. Right. And just how varied it was, even at the beginning when they were writing, you know, it was all this stuff happening, but yeah, sorry, I interrupted. No, no, no. But no, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, Greg Boyd, what he, what he was, the, the meaning that, especially that text, but also Greg Boyd as a sort of, um, you know, national figure in these discussions at the time, uh, you know, his uh, divergences with the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, he and Clark Pinnock, um, both, yeah. but just as sort of standing as witness of like, this is broader than 
a lot of us and our youth groups kind of conditioned us to expect. But also, yeah, his his capacity to move beyond where he was 15 years ago, 20 yeah. years ago, which again, talk about being middle-aged. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think a lot of us kind of went through the, you know, Greg Boyd to Howard Wass to James Cone to Katie Cannon kind of pipeline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's so true. Well, and you mentioned that earlier. Um, we should talk about it because, because for me coming from, conservative political theological conservatism i discover boyd's work in uh at the same time some all this other stuff and so my first move uh was towards political disengagement right i think that third way that you talked about um which i now sort of i describe it as like white anabaptishism yes um because there's there's a lot of us i think that like oh yeah we Conservative Christian political engagement is bad, so we need to draw back and not engage. And there's, um, you know, I spent I spent a good deal of time there, and I know there's a lot of people who sort of stop there, like, oh, this is great, we finally re- reached faithful Christian uh, faithful Christianity. Constantinianism is bad, right? Power mm-hmm. is bad. Um, it, now I'm not a sociologist, but it, sort of in my observation, I've noticed there's like three loose categories of Christian political engagement. We've got various forms of Christian nationalism, uh, conservative engagements. Uh, we've got various forms of apoliticism sort of in the middle, like let's disengage political engagement uh, is inappropriate for the church. We're to be, you know, prophetic witnesses. Uh, just preach the gospel is another version of that, right? Don't talk about politics, just preach the gospel. Yeah. Um, and then on the other side is, various forms of liberation theology or social gospelism and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think all three groups rightly recognize that politics is about power, right? Every, every group says, yeah, politics is about power. Uh, But they all take very different approaches to it. The sort of the right and the left both say, yes, it's about power and let's use it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the conservative Christian national side, let's use it in service of ourselves and self-preservation, social gospelism, liberation theology. Let's use it in service for the, the poor and the marginalized. Uh, and then the middle group saying, no, let's not use it at all. It's bad. That's Constantine. Mm-hmm. Stay away. Let's let's live as as prophetic witnesses, as resident aliens, you know, for Howard right. Wass and Willimon. Right. Uh, yeah. So my I know that's like very oversimplified and there's lots more categories than that, but would you say that that fits some of your research, those, those categories and how would you respond um, to that? And what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that's a good way, kind of a good um, broad heuristic, right. To think through it, because I think, you know, when I'm writing about or thinking about Christian nationalism um, at the, at the center of it, like, as I kind of think about it, the center idol is power, right. Cause it is power to be able to empower is to get others to do what you want, despite their resistance. And so Christian nationalism is focused on securing privileged access to that. um, But in benefit of the quote unquote us, right. Those that are in our group, um, as you point out. And then, yeah, we have those that say, well, we should opt out because that seems kind of bad. Um, Let's just set that aside. Um, But generally to do that, right. You, you're going to have to be in the privileged group. Because those that are trying to maintain access, privileged access to power to benefit us, 
that means they need to ensure that the them, whoever that is, doesn't have access to it. And usually that's minority groups, um, especially in American history. So those that opt out, quote unquote, um, they do that because that group isn't going to come after them. Right. And, and the group right. that is right, trying to secure power to benefit themselves, they're not going to go after the opt outers or those that are part of at least generally um, that group, because as long as they stay quiet, um, then they're not an issue. Um, but yeah, those others, right, maybe liberation theology or social gospel or, or you know, a bunch of different strains there as well. Um, then it is, yeah, understanding power, but trying to um, use power in such a way that it opens up opportunity for those that have been marginalized or oppressed or have not had access to it. And so, yeah, when we're thinking about confronting Christian nationalism, it isn't as though we say, well, power is bad, let's just not use it. Um, but understanding that um, power to be Christian in the social world means you have to be involved. And so that means making use of power, but it we have to broaden the categories of us, right? Who gets included? And I think as Christians and, you know, the teachings of Jesus, or at least the, um, the story of that is breaking down those barriers of exclusion, right? That God is in, in God's kingdom. It is about putting up barriers and just keeping it to a, a small group, but that we're supposed to break those out and, and give freely of ourselves. And so that is not a self-interested power, but power rightly applied. And so um, when I think of an example, and this isn't you know revolutionary in any way, but as we look back on the civil rights movement, um, you know one of the outcomes of that is the Voting Rights Act. And it isn't as though Black Americans or those that you know put that into place, and it was power, right? It was coercive power. It was making folks that didn't want all Americans to vote, they had to let all Americans vote um, against their will in some cases. But um, it wasn't as though, you know, black Americans or those that put that in place were saying, well, now only black Americans can vote and white Americans, you've had it for 200 years and your time is over. Um, they didn't do that. They just said, Hey, everybody has access, right? We're going to allow everybody to be able to access this. And that I think is power that again, breaks down um, barriers. And so for those that were used to privileged access, it feels like discrimination because they're used to privilege, but really it's just equality. It's allowing everybody to have a say. And so I think as Christians working out where we are privileged and understanding that, um, and then not saying, well, I'm just not going to use power, but leveraging our power and privilege in service of those that are being marginalized, oppressed, or are being crushed by social systems that have been put in place that keep them oppressed or keep them on the outskirts. I think that's where we need to start thinking about how we can leverage power. And as I hear, you know, just bring it back to Greg Boyd again, as I hear him talk about that experience of meeting with black church leaders, that's when he realized, oh, I can't just tell people vote, don't vote, you know, whatever you want to do. It's like, no, when you're, when the, when the government is oppressing the group of people you're a part of because of your skin color, you don't have a choice. Like you're an embodied political statement just by existing. And at that point, you're involved whether you want to be or not. And I think as generally white Christians, we forget that because in this country, nobody's ever come after white Protestant men um, like me. Right. 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 And so, yeah, I think that's how I've been thinking about it. And so I think your heuristic is really important and, and helpful just for making sense of kind of those three different avenues. It makes the conversation interesting too, because at some points, 
you've got sort of the right and the left leveling very similar critiques towards the middle, right? But in different ways, <laughs> which is fun yeah. to watch. So you, you have the social gospelers, the liberation theologists looking at the, you know, the third wares in the middle saying, that's not it. And you've also got the Christian nationalists saying, no, you, you need to be, you know, um, you know, so we, the, the battle lines, and I don't, I don't love that phrase because we're trying yeah. to get away from us versus them. Right. Um, yeah. but are not clearly drawn, right. There's, there's weird levels of intersection and maybe perceived a, agreement, even if the ends are wildly different, uh, among the various groups. Yeah. I think mean, that's fair for sure. I was just going to say that a lot of the folks that we regularly cover on this podcast would not agree that white male Protestants are the uh, are, are not are immune from persecution. In fact, the only acceptable group to persecute in America today is the white male, which you know touches on a lot of the things that you describe in the book and the kind of fundamental things that you point to in terms of you know what's animating the white Christian nationalist movement. Um, uh, power, fear, and violence, right? This is kind of the framework that you build um, a lot of your description of the movement on. Can you talk talk a little bit about, you know, that kind of triple framework? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I kind of identify those three, power, fear, and violence as the three, and there could be others, but as we know with, you know, books, I have to focus on something, but um, focusing on those three as idols of Christian nationalism. So, Christian nationalism idolized power, as we've discussed, right? Being able to have privileged access to self-interested power, at least to self-interested ends for the us, whoever that group gets defined as. Um, But then with that, um, a sense of fear and threat is really useful as a motivator, politically and otherwise, um, to help a group draw distinct boundaries around itself. And when it can really understand itself um, very clearly, and the best way to do that is to know who they're not. Right to say this is these are the people you need to be afraid of, and sensing a uh, having a sense of fear, sense of threat, that your access, privileged access to power, is going to be stolen or taken away. That helps really coalesce the group the group together, bring them together, knowing who they are, motivating them, encouraging them to defend that access to power. But when that happens, and when we have those distinct boundary lines between groups in defending privileged access to power then violence is a natural result because a group will be willing to turn to anything in order to defend those boundaries and defend access to power. And so as we look at the history of white Christian nationalism and drawing on the great work of, of many writers and as a good academic, I, you know, they're in the end notes, find those people buy their books, um, really helpful. But then also in the social science that we are able to gather today in different surveys, um, we're able to see that Um, setting aside democratic ideals um, or being comfortable with the use of violence or authoritarian measures in order to defend what they see as this Christian country. We see all of those in play. And so those three idols really do work together and in unison in many ways um, to to push folks that embrace white Christian nationalism to varying degrees, because I don't like to think as in, you know, binaries. It's you know, some folks are kind of ambivalent, some are sympathetic towards it, some strongly embrace it. And that matters, we find um, in survey research. But um, yeah, this quest for power motivated by fear and the use of violence or the threat of violence to defend that um, is really powerful. And I think that's where we can then see and understand. Um, and as I try to argue, that's where we then betray the gospel 
um, you know, as for me, looking at Jesus's first message, where he's talking about good news for the oppressed and poor and, and blind and all of those things, um, you know, what Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism pushes us towards is not about um, the things Jesus was about or commanded his people to be about. Um, and so that's where I think it it pushes American Christians in opposite direction. You you mentioned the spectrum. Um, mm. We can talk a little bit about you know the the spectrum and, and sort of how you define Christian nationalism. Uh, but in the book, you write, "quote Imagine Christian nationalism as a pair of glasses through which Americans see and experience our social worlds." At one end of the spectrum, these glasses are relatively clear. These could be folks who reject Christian nationalism. Uh, moving from one end to the other, an orange tint becomes more noticeable, intensifying the further along you go. Those who wholeheartedly embrace Christian nationalism see a world awash in a deep orange hue. And so I'm just curious, why orange? <laughs> well, there's, you know, there's different reasons. I mean, you could find yes at a couple of those. I didn't want it to be red or blue. Those are taken, you know, in the whole political arena. Um, You'd have to be a sociologist to understand the, the complexity yeah. of this metaphor, Thomas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but maybe, uh, joking aside, you could explain maybe for folks who haven't read Take America Back for God or who can't get around to this one, give us a, a two or three sentence definition of Christian nationalism. Maybe that, that I could tell somebody in my church, right, in a way that they would understand um, and talk about maybe what those different hues of orange might look like. Yeah. So Christian nationalism, um, we define as this desire to see um, and again, we use, I use the term cultural framework, but it's essentially an ideology, a way of seeing the world that desires to see a particular expression of Christianity um, privileged in American civic life, infused with American civic identity, what it means to be an American. And it wants the government to vigorously defend that framework. And again, so the important part is the fact that it's a particular expression of Christianity, because there are many different expressions, but this one is you know, quite conservative politically and religiously, but it brings with it a lot of cultural baggage around this idea of what it means to be American. So America should have a distinct moral hierarchy of, of who are the true Americans on top, maybe in the middle and then at the bottom. And it has a comfort with authoritarianism, right? We need strong rules and rulers to enforce that hierarchy. Um, it wants to enforce strong racial boundaries around who can be imagined as a true American. Um, and so a lot of those elements, right, are, are cooking kind of within this stew of, of Christian nationalism. And so when we measure that among Americans, what we find is that people are found on a whole spectrum um, of belief where some are kind of in the middle where they might be sympathetic or they might be resistant to this idea of America as a Christian nation. Then we have folks who strongly embrace it, right, at one end of the spectrum and others who strongly reject it. And so where you find yourself on that spectrum matters, depending on what we're looking at, whether it's, um, you know, going to war or who you voted for or um, abortion rights, right, all these different um, social topics, it matters kind of where you're at on that spectrum. And so when we're, when I'm thinking of, you know, glasses that are tinted, um, rejecting Christian nationalism, um, 
you know, that is going to influence how you see the social world just as much as those that strongly embrace it. Um, so it could have been like orange to a deep purple or something like that, but it matters. Um, and so seeing the world tinted really strongly, it's going to be hard then to talk to those folks who don't have those glasses on. Um, and that's where, you know, a lot of times it feels like um, in the U.S. It, it really is impossible to really, are we working with the same facts even sometimes? Um, and, and we can understand with this cultural framework, strongly rejecting to strongly embracing it um, really matters. They're going to see the world differently. Um, and so trying to find areas where, where discussion can happen or where it can't, um, again, the idea of, of politics as power rightly applied, right? It may just take that. Um, there was a point, right, where they just had to pass the Voting Rights Act. It wasn't going to be that Southern whites were just going to say, oh, yeah, let's, you know, open up democracy. So there comes a point where, yeah, like it's just going to take political action to benefit minorities or those who are being hurt by these political um, structures. And so that, I think, is a part of, of being Christian in the social world as well. Could that be called Christian nationalism? Because that's that's some of the critique we'll hear from mm -hmm. Christian nationalism, self-identified Christian nationalism, right? Say, oh, well, this is just Christian nationalism on the left, right? It's progressive Christian nationalism. Would you say that that is an accurate description and fits? Or would you say that that, that is something different altogether? Yeah, so I would say it's something different altogether. Um, because, again, when we define Christian nationalism empirically, and again, this is built off um, a number of, well, a book and, you know, a couple dozen studies empirically, again, it's this particular expression of Christianity. That's Christian nationalism. It's this desire for this particular expression or those folks that adhere to it to see American civic life ordered according to what they want. And so if you're not doing that, you're not doing Christian nationalism. Um, it doesn't mean that religion isn't a part of the political process or that people aren't bringing their religion into the public sphere. But again, it's not ser in service of this particular expression that wants to see strong ethno-racial boundaries, that wants to see a strong moral hierarchy around gender and sexuality, let's say, that is fine with authoritarian measures and setting aside democracy, right? So if you're bringing religion in to the benefit of serving even Americans who are secular, um, you're not doing Christian nationalism. Um, that's faith in politics, but that's something different. And so again, it's, um, it is something completely different, but it's important to point out um, that that is a quote unquote, I wouldn't even call it a critique. It's just a misrepresentation, but that does happen. And it's important for folks to be able to identify when that's taking place. Cause again, that's in service of saying, well, we're just doing the same thing. Um, but it's not true, right? Like um, blocking access from minorities voting because of your religion is not the same as Martin Luther King Jr., you know, from his religious beliefs, wanting all Americans to vote. Those aren't both the same thing. So um, it's an important question and point. Well, it's it's also just kind of a stop thought, uh, a thought stopping cliche, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, a, it's an easy way to shut down the conversation um, or at least to reframe it on the grounds that they would like to discuss uh yeah. something that we talked about a couple of episodes ago um because we're uh working through uh, at laboriously working through the statement on christian nationalism and the gospel um which i'd like to ask you a, a question or two about um 
on its own terms uh, yeah. if we have time. But you know, one of the things that we looked at is their their whole position that se- secularism is a religion, and so mm-hmm. you're trying to push the religion of secularism onto um, you know onto the United States, and it seems to me that that's that functions very similarly to mm-hmm. well, this is just progressive Christian nationalism or whatever, right? Is that mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, different rhetorical moves, you know, and so, I mean, there's a part of it too, where I feel like for me, I want to keep bringing it back to, um, we, we can see the problems inherent and in the issues that arise with embracing Christian nationalism. Let's focus on that, right? Because usually it's this deflection, like, well, what about problems over there? And there could be, um, but we're, we're talking about this right now, right? Like when we go to January 6th, there were particular people there praying particular prayers, using particular symbols, right? Um, like live streaming themselves talking about, we need to take this country back for God. And so at that point, I'm like, well, let's focus on that. I mean, that seems to be much more of a, of an issue right here and right now. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's generally a deflection, like you said, of, having to focus on something that may sting a little or may <laughs> cause some consternation um, of how they need to understand it and, and think about being religious, being Christian um, in America, um, in a pluralistic democratic society. Uh, yeah. Having to think through that, I think many probably don't want to have to do that in some sense. You're probably more familiar than most with, with the movement of this, but I've been watching it over the past several years, you and Samuel Perry and others coming out and saying, listen, folks, Christian nationalism is a really big problem. And the initial res- first response sort of seems to be like, what Christian nationalism? That's not even a thing. Nobody's a Christian nationalist, right? To, yeah. well, maybe there are Christian nationalists and you know, that's okay to no, we should be, Christian nationalists, <laughs> um, all right. in a matter of a few years. Yeah. What's been your experience with that? Uh, because you, you've been sort of the tip of the spear with that. Uh, it's got to feel like whiplash walk, watching people's response to that. No, it really is. And you, you described it perfectly. And uh, I always get a kick out of those tweets that people kind of highlight like by year how this has changed. Um, and you describe it perfectly. I mean, in a number of ways, it is really interesting and a little bit wild, right? That um, it wasn't as though we started talking about Christian nationalism first. There were journalists doing it. Um, all of this had taken place. But I think the contribution Sam and I were able to make was really highlighting empirically um, and put some uh, data behind how broad it is, what it looks like, what it's connected to. Um, and so building off the good work that journalists had been doing right on the ground and historians have been talking about with this narrative. But then I think there was kind of this accident of history where the 2016 election turns on, you know, 40,000 votes across a couple counties, across a couple states. And then, bam, a person who lost the popular vote by millions of votes is now in the Oval Office and strongly embraces Christian nationalism, just like other Republicans before him. But totally drops any veneer of being personally Christian, right? And so then it's like we can see the real power of Christian nationalism. The person using it doesn't even need to be anywhere close to what representing these, you know, parts of the Christian faith that I was told and we were told growing up were so important um, and why, you know, we should oppose Democrats or President Clinton, right? Um, So all that flipped. And so I think there 
it was this accident of history where we're able to put empirical data behind it. This moment happens. And then all of a sudden, I think it provided a framework that people could really make sense of their social world. And so, yeah, the term kind of gets out there. And the first reaction was, well, they were probably making it up. It couldn't be real. But then the data is the data. Um, and then they're like, well, it's probably not that bad of a thing. Um, or they're misunderstanding it to, yeah, like you said, you have sitting Congress people <laughs> saying, yes, I am. And here's a t-shirt you can buy, go to my website, you know, like all that stuff. And so um, it is kind of like whiplash, but I think, you know, underneath that, and it's something I think that Nick Don brought up where it's like, it is a, it's a move to take control of the narrative and it's a way to try and muddy the waters or to then adopt it so that they can redefine it um, and help people then just ignore it, which um, that's, I guess, what we're trying to work against now. And, and that I'm trying to work against now is to show, no, this is a thing, but it isn't something that we should be embracing. Um, you don't have to be, you know, I'm not saying you have to become X or Y. There's a lot of possibilities. There are other expressions of Christianity. Just move towards one of those rather than go down this path. So it has been an interesting ride. I think the past like seven years or so, um, for sure. So some, something fascinating about Christian nationalism is its capacity to um, latch onto and in fact ally itself to things that are just deeply and obviously unchristian, right? We mentioned that sudden transition to, no, no, Trump is like a Cyrus figure, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Like we think, oh, you have to have a president who's a good Christian, good evangelical, and then well, we have this convenient opportunity to latch onto something that's the opposite of that. It's like, well, no, God raises up Cyrus for, so we can have theological justification for why all of a sudden no morals don't matter, whatever. Right. But all, you know, you also look at um, the embrace of a f figure like James Lindsay, right. Who comes from this like, you know, hostile atheist position, but there was a while where, especially for uh, conservative Southern Baptist, right. Founders ministry, he became a very sort of useful pivotal figure. He's yeah. sort of fallen out now, although yeah. he's still in with Michael O'Fallon, like they're doing uh, just wild, wild stuff. But he's, he, he's certainly not on the ascent at this point, right. but you right. know, another case in point, but then I think of, you know, to look at January 6th and you have the very explicit and clear, um, Christian nationalist messaging language uh, mm. undergirding the prayers in the Capitol, but then the relationship of that to a figure like Alex Jones, who's always seen as like this sort of cultural Christian warrior, even if his personal life is is like Trump in in stark contradiction to that. Um, yeah. But also, he, you know, if you actually listen to his his programming, has these deeply like he's he's talking about aliens and the third dimension, and like he has these kind of new age spiritualist beliefs. And yeah. then the the Q shaman, who I know he doesn't like to be called that, but what's his name, Jake Jake Angeli, um, yeah. who was known at one point. I, I think he's going by something else currently. Um, okay. But he's he's taken a hard turn toward like very like new age spiritualist mm -hmm. uh, but these things aren't like at odds with the christian nationalist project like how mm -hmm. is christian nationalism which is so centered on like the most fundamentalist and narrow reading of what's acceptable christian orthodoxy mm -hmm. how is it so flexible mm -hmm. in terms of how uh, who and and who it can ally itself with and how it can justify that yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great question. I think, you know, what you underscore too, like you said, the flexibility of the cultural framework is so apparent. 
right? And so I think that's where understanding how power, fear, and violence play into that, those those idols, right, take the story in a different direction and they cause American Christians to see the world in a very different way. And then too, to misunderstand, you know, their relationship to others, um, their neighbors, or even God, um, or the Christian faith in some ways. And so yeah, those cultural, that cultural baggage that gets added in, I think then will create really interesting, as you're pointing out, bedfellows, right? And so I have a colleague who did some work looking at the Tea Party and and how Christian nationalism, that narrative brought together kind of these libertarians and, um, uh, you know, very kind of fundamentalist Christians. And these libertarian folks were generally kind of secular, maybe not even affiliated um, but these folks were able to find common cause together because of this narrative. Um, and they might mean different things by Christian even, um, but the underlying kind of message or outcome is that our group will continue to be privileged, right? And we're going to be able to defend our self-interested access to power and privilege. And so that's why we see too um, recent research that just came out um, underscoring this you know, Christian nationalism strongly um, intertwined with um, openness to conspiratorial thinking, right? And so the the world could be anything, and and these things, these new conspiracy theories, will be wound up, and they'll be more likely to latch onto those because of those cultural elements um, that are a part of Christian nationalism from the beginning. And so, yeah, it really is kind of a adhesive or glue uh, in some ways to take folks that could be very different in other realms bring them together and provide kind of this cohesive narrative, but again, all underpinning um, privilege and, and access to power for the particular in-group. And again, that gets redefined over time. Um, but yeah, it really works flexibly and, and allows them to do that. This is sort of taking a, a tangent away from, from the book, but um, it seems to me that there is emerging a strand of, of, potentially, for lack of a better term, Christian nationalist purists, right? Mm-hmm. So we have some who are willing to make these concessions for the sake of power. There seems to be a small contingent now. So it, and I'll use an example to describe um, presidential candidate from the Republicans, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who is not Christian, but is in many ways, I think, like Donald Trump, shares shares a similar social vision mm-hmm. uh, for a, a nation that I think most Christian nationals say, yeah, we, we want that kind of nation. I have seen some people who would probably be categorized as Christian nationalists embracing him for those reasons like they did Trump. Um, mm-hmm. But I've seen others that are explicitly rejecting him because he is Hindu by faith. Right. And potentially some subtext, he is not white by skin color. Um, so I, I wonder how does this fit into to the framework? Um, you know, we, we know like anything, Christian nationalism is not a monolith. Uh, right. Just like nothing is a monolith. Uh, right. <laughs> um, but uh, how, how would you describe or, or explain that um, phenomenon? Yeah, no, I think you're right. And and that's something that's so interesting, too, to keep tracking. Um, you know, and, and one person I'll plug, or a couple, but Jack Jenkins, he's a journalist with Religion News Service. He's 
he really is tracking kind of Christian nationalism and, and some of his more recent work in the last couple of months really does kind of highlight what you're pointing out, Thomas, that we see some cracks and fissures or some disagreement, right, with these folks that could agree on quite a bit and maybe even agree on this idea of a Christian nation. But then all of a sudden there are things that, you know, pull them apart. Um, and so, you know, too, I think what's useful is, is understanding Christian nationalism in a number of different ways. And, and Sam Perry, uh, my colleague, wrote about this. Um, where he argued that in a lot of ways, this rhetoric at least can be used as kind of a political, he calls it, you know, it's a mating call, which is like very blatant. <laughs> and those that hear it know what it's about and they're going to come. Uh, it could be a dog whistle. Those get rare and rare in these days, right? It, the, like you're saying, the subtext becomes like the text, um, but it could be a dog whistle. Um, and then even in some ways it could be, um, I forget what he calls the, the third, but just it really is underneath the surface where it, it kind of activates, but it isn't anything conscious. Like they just understand that it is, you know, the way that it is. And so um, as a political tool, it can be really useful. And so for, you know, Vivek, I think that's a part of it. He understands it. He may not be a true believer, right? And by faith, he isn't even a Christian, um, but he's, he senses the power, right, of what this can do. And again, power's at the center. And I think Trump is in that as well. But then you do have folks that are like, no, we really want Sabbath laws and we want atheists to have to go to jail, right? <laughs> or whatever, the Stephen Wolfs and, and whoever in the world. Um, and so they would definitely be those that are against, you know, Vivek. They, again, they would want that power, but not from that person, especially racialized as, as non-white. And so again, yeah, there there are those cracks and fissures um, within it, within the movement. And I think as those become more apparent, they'll it'll be interesting to watch um, and to see exactly how that coalition, if there is one, you know, stays together around it, or if if it will just have that variation underneath the surface. I think we've all sort of watched with amusement, um, perhaps unchristianly, but as some of the pioneers of anti-wokeism, uh, Owen Strand and Josh Bice, who were sort of leading leading the charge against critical race theory and wokeism and all of that, all of a sudden are on their heels in on defense because they're being criticized for being too woke uh, by right. some of these Christian nationalist purists, right? For for having given in too much. Now they're they're woke liberals. Um and so personally, I look at that and, and what's that what's that meme uh, from that, that Tom Cruise movie, you know, let them fight. <laughs> um, but uh, so, yeah, what, do you, what do you make of all of that? And the, the infighting on the right is that. How do you think that will coalesce? Is that is that good in terms of does it mute the effect on the public as they're fighting each other? Do we just say, hey, let, you know, stoke the fires and let them go at it? Or will that coalesce into, uh... go ahead, Nick. Right, or, or is it a reflection of the um, Overton window has shifted so far that someone like Owen Strayan is uh, on the liberal end of the conservative <laughs> movement? Yeah, no, I, in some ways, this is kind of a cop-out, but it, it seems almost like a both-and. Right. Like I do think it has shifted and it's so wild to see how much it shifted that all of a sudden now this movement is coming back to bite them. Right. It's the dog catches the car and right. It's a whole different uh, thing then. And, and so it is wild that those that were being the charge and, and just, you know, I was reading through some of those uh, tweets from Owen, but like 
literally just acknowledging that Jesus was born in a particular historical place and time and wasn't white <laughs> was was woke <laughs> according to other folks like so that that is wild so i think it is a shifting um you know and, and usually when we when people talk about the the quote unquote left or at least not conservatives right that it um it's such a uh there's so much heterogeneity it's hard for them to work together because you have folks that are secular or you'll have progressive christians or or whatever and so they it's hard for them to find you know this common purpose whereas the right usually is talked about as this kind of very homogenous. And so it's easy for them to just stick to one script and this is it. Um, I think generally that's probably still true, um, but we do see some of those fissures. And so it will be interesting um, to track that and to see, yeah, are some going to be sent out now? Will it, you know, bring, bring some of those folks who get rejected, you know, to, think deeply about what they've said and done and maybe reevaluate all that. I have my doubts. Um, but generally I think too, there, those are such, that's such inside baseball in some ways that it probably doesn't affect or nobody really knows about it broadly. Um, but yeah, it will be interesting to, to follow and, uh, yeah, a little bit of, yeah, like you said, <laughs> not necessarily joy, but it's just, well, this is interesting <laughs> to watch. <laughs> yeah. A little known fact, nobody knows about it broadly is actually the subtitle of our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But you're doing the work to change that. So I appreciate it. What would you say to critics like Josh Dawes? And I don't know if you've seen these tweets. Maybe you have, but, but he writes, uh, he tweeted recently. He said, quote, anti-Christian nationalism is the new and improved Trojan horse for sneaking progressive politics into the church. Don't believe me? Read Andrew Whitehead's new book. His goal is clear. Convince Christians that any conservative political involvement is Christian nationalism and that the true path of Jesus is progressive politics. Did you see those tweets? Um, You know, I think I did see that. I don't know if I had to block him at some point or I, yeah, somehow, or it could have been, I just was like, uh, you know, it's no point um, engaging with this guy, but um, you know, to that, it's, it's on its face, silly to me, but um, I will say that we, there are, so there was a, um, an article um, in first things, which I'm sure you guys know of first things. There's nobody that would say that as a progressive outlet or publication, right? Very conservative, (laughs) Um, you know, Catholic Christian integration, like they, you know, they have articles on there that would argue in some sense for a Christian nation, but there was a column on there, um, that, um, I forget the author's name right now. And I apologize for that, but he essentially writes, um, a conservative case for single payer healthcare. And it's a really wonderful column to read. Um, and I highlight that because if you went to any gathering of probably conservative Christians or Republicans, and you mentioned single payer healthcare, um, how do you think people would react? <laughs> they would react probably like Josh, like you said, oh, that is progressive, that is communist and Marxist and secularists and like everything against it. But this guy's writing um, and he's serving, you know, abroad and making uh, a strong case, a strong politically and Christian conservative case for single payer and using. Um, arguments that they would talk about. And I think he's right. And so this idea that caring for those around us 
um, or trying to order our politics in such a way that um, it makes broadly accessible, it makes healthcare broadly accessible. I think there can be a very conservative political case for that, and obviously a Christian case for that. Um, and so these categories that have been invented and they are socially constructed and you know, over time um, are just used to draw boundary lines to try and say, well, now nobody has to listen to this guy. Um, but I would say, um, you know, there's there's this broad tradition of, of Christianity outside the U.S. and outside these categories that if we listen to that, um, we might learn something about ourselves and maybe be able to set some things down that we've been carrying. Um, and we might care for those who have been less fortunate than us. And if, you know, that to me, that seems like the heart of of when people say they worship Jesus or are a part of the kingdom of God, that seems to me in line with caring for those around us, no matter who they are. Um, and so, yeah, it, single payer healthcare, that could be a conservative Christian cause. Um, and I think we could think about a lot of things in that way. So that's how I would respond with that particular example that it's something that he would say, oh, that must be progressive, but it doesn't have to be. And I would say, why, you know, <laughs> let's move towards that because who knows how many lives we could save. And we're in, you know, folks usually want to say this is the greatest country. It's amazing. Um, so let's leverage that to care for folks. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that vision is actually something that the left is, uh, in, or at least certain elements of the left are deeply terrified of, right? That mm -hmm. uh, Christians will discover that you can wed so you know economic and social, economically progressive and socially and theologically conservative uh, values together, and get a real sort of populist movement. Mm -hmm. You know, because like Trump represents himself as a populist, but is in fact uh, de deeply tied with the elites. You know, loser by millions of votes of both <laughs> elections. Um, you know, a sort of minoritarian uh, figure, but that you could you could create this sort of unstoppable behemoth of, um, you know, a a Christian right wedded to even just some, and you don't even have to get very far, you know, progressive in the United States, right? Single payer healthcare is uh, not the most radically progressive no. idea, um, <laughs> but to them it so is, right? Like <laughs> right. they would just flip out. But you're right; it isn't the most, yeah. So that there, there's just just a lot of fa fascinating angles to, uh, to to that kind of discussion. But Andrew, we've got about five minutes before the hour. Um, do you want to keep going a little bit longer? Do you want us to give you a chance to to close up and and get back? I know that you've got kids and family and all that stuff, so we'll let you sort of call the shot here. If you want to keep talking, we can go for a little bit longer. We can uh, wrap it up and. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I think, um, yeah, we could do, you know, another question or, or do kind of a wrap up last type of question or whatever that that'd be totally fine. I appreciate that. All right. Well, uh, let's, let's close by, by making it personal again. Mm -hmm. um, the subtitle of your book is how Christian nationalism betrays the gospel and threatens the church. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're very clear when you're at the book, you're, you're not writing this book merely as a, um, unattached sociologist, right? You're writing it as a as a Christian, a, a professing, committed Christian. What is at stake, and why do you care? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think you know some of what is at stake and why I care is 
recognizing even in my own story or for those who, you know, grew up like me or still kind of in that world or community that um, not only does Christian nationalism obviously cost the broader American public, I think, with some of the outcomes that it's associated with, but for those folks too, I think it, it ties them you know, into a world and a way of seeing that really limits experience and limits, um, you know, what they what they confess to be about, and I think are, but to a limited group, right? And so, um, if I was in need of help, I know I could call up many of them, and they would probably still do what they could to help me, or you know, drive down to where I live because I live a little further away. But it's you know, wanting to see that type of care and compassion opened up right to to everybody um and and that i think not only benefits the broader community but will benefit them because you know there's something about um you know reading um you know various um theologians working um and talking about race and racism in the u.s and and recognizing and showing how you know racism um and embracing that it it contorts and twists the person holding on to that ideology. And so there's a sense of care where I want to write to these folks and I hope they at least read it and wrestle with it a little bit because I want to see them be able to, to be free as well. Um, but the most important thing is to then stop doing harm, right? To, to these groups that have been marginalized and, and are being crushed and are trying to share their experience. Um, so it, it hurts obviously those that have been um, under the weight of that oppression, but then also to those folks um, who have been living and walking with that, that they can lay that down and there are other expressions they can move towards. And so, you know, I, that's what I want to be about is to hear the cries of, you know, of the oppressed, to hear those clearly and then listen and follow along, but then to help others hopefully start to listen to those voices too. Um, and that, Flourishing doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. It doesn't have to just be limited to the quote-unquote us. But they can be opened up. And, you know, that, um, I, you know, hope <laughs> is a spiritual practice, you know, as I close the book with that, that I'm told, yeah. right? It, it's moving out in faith and, and believing that something different can take place. And so as a, as a Christian, I have to live in that. As a social scientist, sometimes that makes it really hard. But, um, you know, I'm trying to do that. And so I think that's where, for me, um, you know, I wanted to, to write this book and move out in, um, in that space, um, even though that is different than, you know, what a lot of academics might write, um, to try and see that take place. Because, uh, yeah, it's, it's a moment where I think, yeah, every little bit can help. And so that was the goal. Well, there's a ton in your book that's fantastic, and we've only scratched the surface of it. Um, before we close, is there anything that you wish we would have asked you about that you are just burning to talk about? Before, give you a chance to just sort of open floor, say anything, or, or did we get most of what you would hope to get out? No, yeah, no, it's been a great discussion. I mean, that's really what I hope the book helps to do is um, raise some questions, provide some context, both historically and in the present time, for people to wrestle with. You know, and Brazos was, you know, they encouraged me to write a discussion guide. And so, you know, for people to wrestle with that, to think through some of those questions, because I try to talk about, you know, I'm still on a journey. I'm still trying to learn more and I have more, you know, I have more to do. I have more work to do. Um, and, and that's okay. Right. Like we're, we're all entering at different points. 
Um, and so it isn't as though we should be ashamed that we're at point one or two, um, but ashamed if we just throw our hands up and stay there. So yeah, hopefully the book is an invitation to wherever you're at on your journey, you know, gain more tools if it's helpful in that way, or perhaps explore a new area I haven't thought about. And so, um, yeah, that would be my hope. And, but yeah, it, it's all a part of that conversation. And so, yeah, I've enjoyed uh, spending time with you guys. Well, we're super grateful that you have taken the time to, to be with us tonight. Um, I'm sure we could do three or four more of these and, and still not exhaust everything in the book. Uh, but thanks for writing it. Thanks for your vulnerability in it. I think I tweeted when I first started reading it. Um, you just, the compassion, I think, bleeds through um, and heart bleeds through in, in really helpful ways. And so um, I hope it, I hope it lands. I, I hope it picks up um, steam. I hope all of the hate tweets uh, do for you what it did for Kristen uh, Dume. Oh, right? yeah. Just, <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, thanks for taking the time uh, away from your family to be with us and uh, look forward to what comes next. All right. Yeah. Thank you guys. All right. This has been another episode thanks, of it. All the Rage. <laughs> uh, we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. All the Rage is recorded and produced by Thomas Horrocks and Nick Don Stanton Rourke. Find more, including Patreon and an open to the public Discord server at the links in the description. The intro-outro music is Dweller on the Threshold by Neolor, used under CCBY license. See you next time.